Okay, well, here we are. We're a little bit late, which means we're exactly on time. I'll start really fast with a couple of things. I got a few letters, not too many, a couple, three maybe, asking me to go into whether or not this coronavirus uh, had any human influence in it. Obviously, I do not believe that it was a, a natural event in the sense that I do not believe a bat flew 600 miles away from where its indigenous area was and drowned itself in a pot. I've said that before. I don't think that is reasonable. Occam's razor tells me that that, that facility is the, is the origin of this particular uh, virus. Whether or not it has been manipulated or militarized, another thing completely. I'm beginning to study uh, the sequences of the g- genetic elements of it as much as I can. It takes me a little while, but um, I'm beginning to get a grasp on it. And I, I know I recognize that the, there are two sides here. Um, and both of them seem to have some kind of merit to them, and I'll try to do my best to figure it out. It's not my field, but uh, I will do what I can with it as time goes by. I've got all the research accumulated, and now I'm about ready to go through it. And let's see, the other thing, of course, is, uh, let's see, I had two things that I wanted to talk about in that regard. And I can't remember the second one. I should have written it down, but I didn't. Don't have time, even if I did. So let's get going here. Today, September 27, 2020, lecture discussion number 117. I believe that's true on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. And uh, we last, and this is going to be, this is going to be, how do I put it, more disconnected than our normal disconnecting. Uh, As I read it uh, earlier today, I realized that I had a tendency to wander around because there's so much information. I have a tendency to find one little piece of it and say, okay, I need to do that. And then I forget where I was and I just keep writing. And then finally, when I do review it, I try to review it before I come up here. So it's not as, as, uh, how do I place this? What's a good word? Dysynchronous, incongruent. Pick one of those. That's all I've got today. As usual, it would be. So that's my point. Um, it's not going to be, as I've read it, I said, okay, I can't take anything out of it, but it doesn't quite fit together what, the way I had hoped. We last left off with the Christ-Moses comparison. That's what we're doing. Christ-Moses-Adam comparison. And, uh, but we focused on Adam-Christ. Now we're focusing on Moses-Christ. And we're working our way through the entanglements that result from Deuteronomy 18.15. So this... This is the foundation of it, if you will. Deuteronomy 18.15. Let's make that more of a you, not an M. Moses at Deuteronomy 18.15 gives the nation of Israel, in my opinion, and I think it is non, there's no controversy here, perhaps the most definitive methodology for identifying the coming Messiah, the Messianic King. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet or the prophet. It's a singular term there. There's no plurality to it. So keep that in mind. The Lord your God will raise up for you the prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. That's what he says. Deuteronomy 18.15. 
And that is a gift, therefore, to Israel. He gives them a gift. And to the Gentiles, us, by extension. It comes through the Jews, and we benefit from that. The prophet can be recognized, therefore, by his deliberate, willful revealing of Moses' words and actions. What the, Moses literally and actually said these things. Inside them, if you wish, hidden inside them, uh, is this, uh, are these evidences of the prophet that is to come, the Messianic king. And Christ took these things of Moses and applied them to himself. So they apply to the Messiah. And obviously, to, uh, for someone to do that, to take somebody else's life, I granted it's in Scripture, but to take somebody else's life and find those things inside of it that apply thousands of years later, that would require an extensive knowledge of Moses. You have to really study Moses to find all of these pieces because there are hundreds of them. And so this has got to be somebody who knew Moses, say somebody or someone who was face to face with Moses. Now, that would be pretty handy if you could find somebody who would transcend time, who's outside of time and would know Moses face to face and then uh, place these things, if you will, in his life or take these things that are in his life and then apply them at this extraordinary level later on, thousands of years. And so anybody who has that kind of capability would have the ability to unfailingly demonstrate Moses' life as it portrayed the prophet. So the prophet, all I'm saying is, is the prophet had to know Moses and the prophet had to be the one that is... Uh, Involved in the writing of Moses' life as it, as it portrayed the prophet. And Moses says this effectively, I am an example. <laughs> hidden in me, he's saying, hidden in me, Moses is the great prophet of God. The great prophet intends to announce himself to the nation of Israel and to the world by attaching himself in a much more significant way to my experiences. That's what Moses is saying here. The great prophet will elevate that which Moses began, if you want to think of it that way. Moses put all of this stuff in front of us and he said, this is going to be the great prophet. He'll take it and he'll move it up here. And all of the aforementioned that I just said is something that 95% of all of the Cliffside congregation, uh, analog and digital, you already know that. I'm not giving you anything you don't know. I've done Deuteronomy 18:15 many, many times. But people come for one sermon and they never come back. And so I want to make sure they get that at least so that they will have this great gift to the Israel, to the Israelites and to the Gentile. So knowing that you already know what I gave you, let's see what else Moses had to offer, offer here. I have little things. There it is. I got it out. Breakfast. I eat very badly. What I mean by that is I eat terrifically well now. But the food is terrible. I eat unsalted sunflower and pumpkin seeds every day in order to get my magnesium and potassium levels to be stable. Because magnesium, potassium, calcium, and sodium are the electrolytes that operate the myocyte in the heart. So I'm very cognizant of what I'm eating None of it tastes good, and it sticks to my teeth, and it makes me miserable. And occasionally I spit it out in a way that is, how do we put this, uh, disrespectful? Uh, 
immature? I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, Moses didn't stop at 1815. That, per, that prophetical statement of Deuteronomy 1815. He could have stopped, but he didn't. And therefore, we should read further. See what he added to this. This incredible statement, and then he added information. Just in case, just in case, there's always a possibility that Moses added more or placed more information. Even though, again, Deuteronomy 18.15 stands alone as extraordinary, as incredible. Okay, keep in mind the subject this Sunday is the same as last Sunday. And yes, I know that could be said of every single Sunday I have ever Sundayed. I know that. I can hear everyone right now shouting at their t- computers, everything's the same. If I got told how many times you repeat the same subjects, I, I would have a lot better motorhome. And I have no motorhome. But that's just how the Bible is. I, there's nothing I can do about it. I, I must say there has been some unforeseen benefits uh, of doing these lectures to the three people wearing masks. That would be you three. There's a lot of benefit here. I didn't realize it when I started. I thought this is going to be terrible. I have to have people visually responding to me and my fantastic sense of humor. Uh, and uh, I can't see anybody. And there's no I shouldn't say there's nobody here, but there's very few people. I have three people wearing masks, as I said. The, the good benefit, of course, is the decibel level of the snoring has significantly reduced. And that, that's been fantastic. The mask is kind of a prophylactic to the to the sound. It's a sound barrier, so big plus there. And that the morale, therefore, of the HTRP has improved. And I've started to like this. Okay, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22. Let's go do that. I put my glasses on top of my head, even though they are completely worthless to me. I don't know why I do it. It's some form of insanity. The Lord your God will raise up for you the prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Now, he beats that into you, doesn't he? He's trying to tell you something from your midst, from your brethren. Who is he talking to? The Jews. Why does he say from your midst and then go ahead and say from your brethren? Because there are many of of Egypt in this midst. There are Gentiles here. So he makes it very specific from your midst and then he makes it Absolutely uh, undeniable what he means from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord, your God in Horeb. Ah, we're going to start out with Horeb. Deuteronomy 18.15, when the subject is the prophet, he brings up Horeb. He could have brought up any place, couldn't he? This is the place he brings up when he is in the context of the prophet like unto me. According to all you desired of the Lord, your God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore. Remember, we talked about fire. Why does he say he will test with fire last week? This great fire anymore, lest I die. Who's the great fire? The great fire is obviously being attached to the God at, to God at Horeb. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. 
I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. How many words are in God's mouth? And he's going to put them all into the prophet. So what does that mean about the prophet? Let's see, where am I? And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words when he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. In other words, there's accountability here. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Who is that prophet? I have this juxtapositioning, don't I, of of the prophet and a dying prophet. How shall we know the words which the Lord has not spoken when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord? If the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So you shall be afraid of the prophet. What fear do we have to of the great prophet should we have? What is the appropriate fear that he is speaking of? Okay, to repeat, that is a continuation of the body of Moses and the body of Christ investigation that we're on. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22 predicts that, predicts that the death of Moses, the burial of Moses, would be certain to have some kind of resemblance to the death and the burial to come of the prophet. It is absolutely impossible not that for that not to happen. If anything were to occur that is the same between someone who is a type of Christ, designated as a type of Christ, in this case, the prophet will be like me. So the prophet will obviously be like, the. there will be a, a resemblance, there will be a congruency to the death of Moses and the death of Christ and the burial of Moses and the burial of Christ. And hopefully you notice the pieces that Moses included in this incredible prophecy. The prophet like unto me. The prophet's going to be a Jew. That's cold hard fact. People don't like that. The world does not like that. Salvation is the name of the prophet and salvation will come through the Jew. I got really nasty letters when we first went on the internet from people that told me that I loved the Jews. Ah, and they were, they were very angry at that. There's a lot of hatred for the Jews, for Israel. But that's, there's 18.15 through 22 saying the prophet, the savior of the world, the one who has the word of God in his mouth, which means he has to have the word of God in his person, right? Which means he has to be of the triune Godhead. The prophet would be a Jew. That's the brethren. He would see the nation of Israel as his brethren. And that would, uh, which um, then will explain not only a part of the third saying of the seven sayings of, of Jesus God from the cross, right? He has seven sayings. Remember, we've been doing that. Uh, we have this incredible saying. Well, let me make sure that I have the number correctly. I'm pretty confident that it is the third saying. Yes, it's the third saying. So what he says from the cross of the seven sayings, the third one, he says something that is explained by 1815 through 22. This is what he says. This is what Jesus God says from the cross. 
It's what he says, God in the flesh says in Mark 3, 31 through 35. Christ says, asks, God asks a question from the cross. This is omniscient God from the cross asking a question. Oh, what does being elevated on the cross, where in Moses' life is Moses and Christ tied together? Because clearly being on the cross has to have some relationship to Moses. Prophet like unto me. So where is Moses in a cross-like condition? Again, this is the process of the death of Jesus. So I look at the process of the death of Moses. Christ says, God himself in the flesh asks a question. Again, always pay strict attention when Christ asks a question. He says this from the cross. Who is my mother or my brothers? Well, he really doesn't say that from the cross, does he? He says this. Woman, behold thy son, behold your mother. That's the one. Did the timeless, omniscient Jesus Christ remember that at Mark 3, 31 through 35, and Luke 8, 19 through 21, and Matthew 12, 46 through 50, ooh, that's cool, Matthew 12. Did he remember Matthew 12, 46 through 50, that's the context of the rejection of Christ by the religious leaders of Israel on the basis that he's possessed by Satan. That's the sign of Jonah. Did Christ remember that when he said, woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother? Did he remember that he said, who is my mother Who or who is my brothers? Did he remember that? Did he put all of that together? How good is he? Did he know? Please. What I'm saying to you is that that third saying goes back into 18, Deuteronomy. And all of that is attached. The third saying is attached to Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22 through Mark. And if only we had time. I should say this really fast. I, I know you saw the Antichrist in, that, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22, that the prophet that does not speak for God. Who does the prophet who does not speak for God? Who, who does he speak for? Okay, so far, how far did we get? Jesus would be a Jew. The prophet would then be a Jew. God in the flesh is a Jew. What's the question? Why? Why the Jew? Everyone says Abraham. Well, why Abraham? Why is Abraham a Jew? What? The, the Islams, obviously, they're Abrahamic. Is it Abraham? Is that the reason? Or does it predate Abraham? When did God decide that he was going to be a Jew? What does the Bible say, Revelation 13? Before the foundations of the earth. So again, I say the question, why is he a Jew? Did he have to be? Trick question there. He's omniscient God. So the answer is yes. Is this Genesis 3? I always say everything goes back to Genesis 3. Anyway, set that aside. Note that Moses in his life 
as the king, if you want to think of it that way, the prophet. He's the prophet of Israel. Note that uh, he was isolated from Israel when he began, before he began his ministry. He was separated away. Israel was in Egypt and Moses was in the kingdom, if you will, of Egypt. He's in the Pharaonic uh, establishment, so he is isolated. He's isolated from Israel until when? Until he kills an Egyptian. An Egyptian is beating a Jew and Moses kills him. And that killing of that Egyptian leads to Moses fleeing from the Pharaoh. So I have isolation and then I have him fleeing. As he comes to Israel, as he wants to be part of Israel, uh, he ends up having to leave. Exodus 2, 11 through 15. And also note that the Jews rejected Moses. The first such example is Exodus 2, 14, where it says, who made you a prince of and a judge over us? Two Jews were fighting amongst themselves, and he, told, he tried to break it up, essentially. I guess that would be the appropriate way to describe it. And they say, who made you a judge over us? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? The, the obvious answer, or that's a rhetorical question, is no one did. You don't have the right to judge us. You don't have the right to rule over us. That is exactly what Christ, they, they, they say to Christ at this day. That he is not the Messiah. He has no right over them. They rejected Moses. The question they asked Moses in that particular incident was, Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And that, of course, panicked Moses. And he recognized everyone knows that I have killed an Egyptian. The Pharaoh will come after me. That leads to him fleeing. So he goes into the... Yeah, and to, some would say the desert, others would say the wilderness. In any event, he goes away as far as he can get. And I want you to notice the similarity of Israel's accusation in Exodus 17.3 to Exodus 2.14. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? They said to Moses when he came on their behalf to save them, that he did, they wanted to know if he was a murderer. Remember 17.3 of Exodus, where Moses struck the rock at where? Where did he strike the rock? Oh, look. Right there. How much do you think that place is going to come up, Horeb, today? Over and over again. Why? Moses struck the rock at Horeb, Exodus 17.6. And what, were the Israel, what was Israel doing there? Why did he strike the rock? They, were, they wanted water. And this is smote the rock. He killed the rock. The old King James has that right. The rock, the rock being Christ. But prior to that, Exodus 17:6, Israel is blaming God, accusing God uh, of the lie of Satan, essentially, of premeditated murder. You brought us out of here just to kill us, our children, and our livestock. That is the testing of the Lord. And God tests with fire. So I asked last week, what is he testing? Why is he testing with fire? Why is fire equal to God? What is fire to God? Where does, why does he use it as the way he does? So that happened at Horeb. I have this representation of Exodus 2.14 and Exodus 17.6. At Horeb. Horeb. 
Didn't Moses stand before the, the angel of the Lord? He did. He stood before the angel of the, of the Lord. What was the angel of the Lord doing? Well, he was fire. What kind of fire was he? He was fire in a what? In a bush. So the angel of the Lord was at the burning bush. Where was that? That was at Horeb. That's where the, the angel of the Lord says that he is the I am that I am. That is where the holy ground. Moses, take off your sandals because you are on holy ground. That's Horeb. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That is all said. Let me say it again. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That occurred. That I am that I am. I am occurred in Exodus 3. Uh, 14 1 through 14 actually and all of that was at Mount Horeb Mount Horeb is called the mountain of God Har Ha Har Ha Elohim Elohim is Genesis 1 1 1 that's the triunity of God that is the mountain of the triune God is Horeb all of that happened Coincidentally, all of that happened in the exact same place. Well, we had no other places. And there's much, much more. I haven't even begun to scratch what's there. Is it not so that Mount Horeb, Deuteronomy 1, 2 through 6, is the location from which Israel begins their journey? Rhetorical question implies the positive. There's a mountain. And a lot of you already know, that's not a really great mountain. I'll put a tree on it. That'll make the artwork a lot more impressive. Those are really big trees if that's a really big mountain. It looks like a... uh, Never mind. I won't get distracted. There's a mountain. There's a burning bush on that mountain. There's holy ground on that mountain. This is where... uh, Moses is at this mountain. Here's Moses, long hair, staff. Gosh, I'm good at this. Burning bush, the angel of the Lord is there. I am that I am. The most incredible statement ever made in human history that we're aware of. I am that I am occurs here. This is also the place where the nation of Israel starts its journey from. Again, probably coincidental. What is Horeb to God? This, the mountain of the Elohim God. Horeb carries the meaning, the name Horeb, is attached to desolation. This is the Mount Desolation of the Elohim. Mount Desolation would be the literal translation. Therefore, the nation of Israel initiate their walk, their march to the promised land or the promise of God from the mountain of desolation. Why begin the journey and the walk of the nation of Israel from the place of desolation. Why is this the holy mountain of God? That's what he calls it, the holy mountain of God. He also calls it a place of desolation. And therefore, the most obvious of the obvious questions now start to fly out and whoop us upside the head. 
Let's just go over them fast. I already raised most of them. Why does God call this mountain the place of desolation? Why does God name this mountain the mountain of the Elohim? Why does he choose to reveal his name, the I am that I am, at the mountain of desolation? What's going on? And back we go to the fundamental question that we've been asking before about Adam. What happened at this place? Something happened here. Is the first time did God say, okay, I need a place to meet with Moses. I'll pick a place. I'll pick this place. Has no significance to me whatsoever. Or does this place have incredible significance? And who would know of its significance besides God? What happened here? At this place first, this place of holy ground, Exodus 3, 5. He calls it holy ground. I am that I am proclaims what? What is he saying when he says, I am that I am? He's proclaiming his timelessness. This is the timelessness of God. He conceived and he installed time. This is what he says to Moses. I am the one who conceived and installed time. Time is a function of consciousness. Therefore, God is the one who is the bestower, if you will, of all consciousness. All consciousness comes from the I am that I am. This is the truth that is given to Moses at Mount Horeb, Exodus 3, 2. And it is the angel, the angel of the Lord, who appears to Moses at Exodus 3, 2. And Jesus Christ is the angel of the Lord. There's your the beginning of all of the connectivity. Jesus Christ, therefore, is the I am that I am. Does he ever say that? Does he ever say, I am that I am? Well, he does. John 8, 12, John 8, 24, John 11, 25, John 10, 7, 10, 11, 14, 6, 15, 1. And that's just the easy ones. He says the word I am, I am, I am over and over and over. Every time he says I am, he is saying I am that I am of Exodus 3.14. Every single time. In the Gospel of John, therefore, if you read it, you see all of these I am's in the Gospel of John. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, okay. Medicine that isn't really medicine. I used to have medicine, really good medicine. Made by the Coca-Cola company. I haven't had one in, my gosh, over a year now, have I? That's why I can't. Why I'm, I love my medicine, as you know. The Gospel of John pours I am that I am all over in itself. I want you to know that's the focus. Everything about the Gospel of John is screaming and yelling at us Exodus 3.14 Exodus 3.14 is the point the whole point of the gospel of John he is proving he is giving you evidences of who Christ really is and again you must believe Christ or you will perish in your sins that's what he says for if you do not believe I am and let me say it the way it, uh, the way he meant it. If uh, I shouldn't say that, let me say it the way that it, the extended element of it. For if you do not believe I am that I am, you will die in your sins. That's John eight twenty four. Those are the words of Christ. And so John goes about proving that he is the I am that I am. 
And it, so therefore, I hope therefore, I hope I've made the case, I am that I am, that phrase, that name of Christ, that name of God, that name of the Elohim, are tied directly, they're inseparable from the mountain of God, the mount of desolation, Mount Horeb. So what I am saying is I have his timelessness and his consciousness. Again, time is a conscious, uh, has a conscious origin. There must be consciousness for there to be time. Now, the physicists think that humanity produces the consciousness that has installed time. That's not true. Our consciousness comes from consciousness. So timelessness and desolation are put side by side here at Mount Horeb. Now, I suspect that many, if not most, if not all of you, are aware of Deuteronomy 4.44 through 5.22. And and, uh, you also have Deuteronomy 4.7 through 14. These are passages that establish the interchanging of Mount Horeb with Mount Sinai. In other words, Mount Horeb is the same exact mountain as Mount Sinai. That's where the Ten Commandments came. How much stuff is happening on this mountain? There's a lot of stuff here. Why is there so much? It's like he took a dump truck of all of his He just put it on Mount Horeb slash Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, same mountain, Ten Commandments. And I know there are are commentators that think otherwise. There's a few. They insist that the two mountains are distinct mountains, that they're, they're not the same mountain. I said that badly. They insist that there are two mountains. And I am saying that no, there is one mountain with two names. And, uh, And it's clear to me that there's one mountain that has two names. Now, when I say two names, I mean two names that I think uh, are the names to consider. The the Jewish theologians have attached other names. Uh, Sinai, as you know, is called the the wilderness. It's the Sinai wilderness, the desert, uh, at first in Scripture. And then it becomes Sinai Mountain or Mount Sinai. The wilderness of Sinai is how it's established in the beginning, uh, Exodus 19.2. And obviously, something of great importance is occurring here, occurs here, occurred at this exact location. The angel of the Lord, the I am that I am, the fire. uh, And fire, again, is an emblem of God. Uh, Is this the same fire as all fire? We have fire. Is that an emblem of God? Is God? Is God in all fire or does he have his own fire? So I have fire, I have thunderings, which are languages, I have the Ten Commandments, I have the, go- the covenant with Israel, through whom would come the seed of the woman, the Savior of creation, uh, John 3.16. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the creation. It is said world so many times now, that's how it's usually thought. But it is, the word in the Greek is the entirety of the creation. So to repeat the central question, I'm just firing stuff, aren't I, today? That's what I tried to tell you. There's nothing I wanted to leave out. So it becomes this big disoriented thing. And the question is, is how is that different from every other Sunday? Again, a rhetorical question. So to repeat the central 
element here, component. Moses takes off his shoes, his sandals, in order to stand in this holy place, the place of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where they are declared to be alive, awaiting resurrection. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> Again, this is Matthew 22, 29 through 33. Uh, where he answers the question because the Sadducees said that there is no resurrection in the Old Testament. And he said, well, don't you know the scriptures? Of course they didn't know the scriptures. If they had known the scripture, they would have recognized the I am that I am the God of Isaac, Jacob, and Abraham. I said that out of order. I am that I am is the God of the living. He says that in Matthew 22, 29 to 33 and destroys the Sadducean sect. And it never rises up again. Some people think that they are the writers of the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were so humiliated. We don't know for sure. I hope they were. Why did Jesus Christ choose Mount Horeb, this place, this location? I've been asking that question about all kinds of things. Here comes the big kahuna, if you will, the Megillum Gorilla. Christ calls out, as you know, Moses, Moses, Exodus 3, 4. Does that remind you of anything? Christ is there and he calls out to a man and he says, Moses, Moses. And Moses answers, what does he say? Here I am. Who else had this kind of experience? Genesis 3, 9, the Lord God calls to Adam, where are you? That's what he says. Where you? Sounds like Hawaiian pidgin English. I would know. Where are you, if you wish? Adam was afraid, Genesis 3.10. Moses was afraid, Exodus 3.6. Probably just, just, just ignore it. Adam hid because he was afraid, Genesis 3.10. Moses hid his face for he was afraid, Exodus 3.6. Again, more of the same, coincident upon coincidence, move along, nothing to see here, pay no, never mind. Don't, don't go back and start reading Romans 5.14 and Deuteronomy 18.15 and see what the implications are theologically. Don't do that. That would be, who cares? <sighs> well, I submit that these things are purposed. Again, coincidence is not... Possible Coincidence is contradictory with omniscience and timelessness. There is nothing arbitrary or incidental in Scripture. Not one thing, not a jot, not a tittle, Matthew 5, 17 through 18, shall pass away. These are the words of Christ himself, the Lord of God, emphasizing the Lord God, emphasizing the source of Scripture and the endurance of Scripture as well as the authority. The authority of Scripture is absolute. It is perfect in its original form. When I wore a younger man's clothes, I didn't write that. Well, I did write that. I stole it. 25 years ago or better, I have plus, 25 years plus, I actually had someone hold up a sign. Who cares? During one of my lectures. I've, I've referred to this a couple of times over the years. I was surprised when I saw it. Uh, even though uh, hecklers are encouraged at beautiful downtown cliffside, which is neither beautiful downtown or on the side of a cliff. 
Anyway, the holder of the sign was annoyed by my enthrallment with respect to the kinds of subjects I am doing right now. Going about finding pieces, seeing if I, I can figure out what's, what is underneath all of this. What are the secrets? What are the mysteries? By finding all the pieces. I had a long conversation with somebody uh, a couple of hours maybe, at least an hour and a half, on the difference between angels and men. If you're going to study angels, and you're, you're going to have to study Genesis 6. You're going to have to study Ezekiel 28. You're going to have to study Isaiah 14. You'll have to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. You'll have to figure out how they fight with swords. You'll be in Jude 9. Uh, you will be in Revelation 12. You'll have to do all of these things just to figure out. Why do, why do angels, they kind of look like men, but they don't have bodies? Uh, why do we judge angels? Why are they messengers to us? Why do they come and get us when we die? All of these things. How are they the same and how are they different? That's a tremendous subject. You have to go and get all the pieces and the better, you can't get very many pieces. I, I, got, I told him to take four out of the hundreds. Uh, I've always, like I said, the holder of the sign was annoyed because I've been enthralled with these kinds of uh, subjects um, every, ever since I started trying to do this. My perspective is that the, in this particular instance is that the Adam-Moses-Christ relationship is, is evidentiary. It's a defining proof that the Bible is the work of an unfathomable, an unimaginable intelligence. This is an intelligence that when you start figuring out what he's done with his word, with his book, you just go, my gosh. Actually, my God. Uh, so it's proof that, that the writer of the Bible is a consciousness, is an intelligence that we can't comprehend. And that it also proves, of course, that I'm, what I'm trying to say now is that Christ is the I am that I am of Exodus 3.14. He's the breath of life of Genesis 2.7. He's the resurrection and the life. But that my heckler, when I was doing these kinds of things, he, he thought it was just tedious and worthless. And therefore he raised up the sign, who cares? And at the time, I was actually pleased that someone in attendance was not only still awake, but was motivated enough to construct, scrawl out a question. Because, you know, I really like questions. And I don't remember what I did. I'm pretty sure I responded to the who cares, because I would. If somebody raises up a sign now, I would definitely take note of it. So I'm pretty sure that I said something. And if I said something, I, it would probably be a question. Because he asked a question, so I would answer his question with a question because I love questions can't be certain can't remember if I did that but hopefully I, di I did do that today would be different somebody hold up a sign today saying who cares I know you're thinking it <laughs> but you're not taking the time to write it down on a placard and hold it up in the air in the midst of the lecture which you have to give him some enthusiasm yeah. That, uh, there's an anatomy there. He's sitting there going, I hate this so much, I'm going to get a piece of cardboard, and I'm going to get a felt marker, uh, a sharpie, and I'm going to write who cares on it, and I'm going to hold it up where he can see it. I, I hate it this much. That's a tremendous amount of, of again, enthusiasm and uh, process, which I couldn't help but delight in. But today I would point out that caring is a relative term. Because there's levels of caring. How much caring is caring? Can you have 
infinite caring? Can you have zero caring? If, if I have any kind of caring at all, is it caring? So it's a relative term. Everyone has its own and their own definition of what caring is. And therefore, who cares cannot be known, can it? Because a true measurement is impossible inside of time, which leads to the obvious question. What are the theological implications of the direction and irreversibility of time and the impossibility of true measurement because they are locked together? How are they connected? That's how I would respond to who cares today. I suspect my antagonists would then submit to being collected by the awaiting mental health professionals in the white coats. Okay, let's add another component to the Moses problem. Deuteronomy 5, 44 through 46 says this. Now, this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which Moses spoke to the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt on this side of Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor. In the valley opposite Beth Peor. That is Deuteronomy 5:44 through 46. And you are now jumping up and down with great delight, aren't you? Aha, you said. Beth Peor. Because you all know what Beth Peor means. But it really isn't about Beth Peor, is it? No, it's about the valley. If you went to Beth Beor, you would be looking in the wrong place. You should be paying attention to the valley. Yes, ma'am. Is that all I have left? Oh, my goodness. Got to hustle now. See, this is more specifically the valley opposite Beth Peor in the land of Moab, Moab, Deuteronomy 34, 6 is what we're talking about here, aren't we? This is where God hid, buried the body of Moses. So here we go again. What else happened in this valley opposite Beth Peor? What happened first here? Why did God choose this place to bury the body of Moses? Is anybody else buried here that no one knows about? And if so, who? What happened at Beth, the valley opposite Beth Peor first? Why did the omniscious, omniscient, I'm sorry, timeless God of all creation choose this place to bury his beloved Moses? And how does this explain Jude 9? Michael and his angels contending with Satan and his fallen angels over the body of Moses. How does that, how does where he buried him help explain Jude 9? Is God choosing the locations that he's choosing to show the angels that he is systematically, step by step, restoring, if you will, or correcting, maybe better, perhaps cleansing might be what I really should say. That might be the more accurate, that which was previously defiled. And if so, when did they defile it and how did they defile it? In other words, what is the theological purpose? To me, it appears that God is checking off boxes, so to speak. To what end? Again, what purpose is that? Am I right about this? I will leave it up to you to decide yes. 
Moses gives two addresses, two speeches to Israel, reminding them of their history post-exodus from Egypt. Two speeches. Why two speeches? Why not get it done in one speech? But he doesn't. He has two speeches. He mentions his burial site in both of his speeches, both of his addresses. Deuteronomy 3.29 is his burial site. He mentions, I'm sorry, is his, one of his addresses. He mentions his burial site. That's the first address. Deuteronomy 4.46 is his second. Did Moses know? Did Moses know that this is going to be, he's going to be in this valley when he died? How much time did he spend face to face with God? How many sets of tablets did he bring down? Two sets of tablets. How much time does Moses have face to face, nobody but him or God? How many days? What do they talk about? Deuteronomy 3.23 through 29 is incredible. I wish we had time other than to say the Lord, as described by Moses, the Lord was angry with me on your account. That's what Moses says there at Deuteronomy 3.23 to 29 to Israel. The Lord was angry with me because of you. Moses prayed to be allowed to cross over and see the good land. I know you know that. The pleasant mountains and Lebanon. He was not. God forbade it. And he forbade it on account of Israel, because of Israel. That which should have been assigned to Israel, therefore, was instead transferred to Moses. Does that make sense? Israel should never have seen the promised land. But they were allowed to see the promised land. And Moses, the prophet, was not allowed to see it because of Israel. And so something was transferred to Moses, the mediator, the prophet. Deuteronomy 18.15 typology is, I hope, clearing up for you. The prophet to come would bear the sins of the saved. The death of Moses and the death of Jesus would be aligned. Though the death, of, in other words, they would, they would have this incredible relationship as to the, what they're accomplishing. Israel gets to go in the promised land. What's the reason they get to go? God was angry with me on your account. You've already put it together. You don't need me. I can see through the masks. And uh, listen, the, there would be a semblance, uh, there will be a uh, similarity. But the death of God in the flesh is incomparable. And it cannot be known. You can't know the death of God. There is an unknowable aspect to the death of Moses and the death of God. It's probably. Just go over it and move on. Nothing. Pay no never, never mind. I like pay no never mind because it's a double negative. With that said, Beth Peor, the meaning is, is somewhat murky. Did Satan know about the valley opposite Beth Peor? Just asking for a friend if I had one. Did Adam ask about what Shirley Die meant? Did he say, when God said, don't eat from that tree, you'll surely die. Did Adam say, hey, what's that mean? Did Moses talk to God about his death? When Moses wrote 1815, do you think he understood the totality of it? Beth Peor. Why the valley opposite Beth Peor? 
How much did Moses know about the valley opposite of Beth Beor is what I'm asking. Did he know what happened there first? Once he found out that this is where he was going to die, did he ask, why am I going to put my, what, this is where he's going to be buried. You're going to come up to this. Ah! I'm getting all disoriented. He's climbing up a mountain. He has no problem climbing up the mountain. He has no diminishment. I'll get to that in a second. He's able to climb a mountain at 120. I'm not able to climb stairs at 67. Things are going bad for me. But he ran up the mountain. I'm confident that he had no difficulty going up that mountain. Uh, did he ask God why this mountain? Did he ask God why that valley? How smart is he? Did he know what happened in the valley? And did he know what happened in that mountain, Nebo? How, how much did Adam know about the fall of Satan and the angel? Why they fell? Did he ask? Did he know the angels? Absolutely, he did. Did he ask God, why am I the second king of Eden? What happened to the first king? Tell me the story. How much did Adam know? How much did Moses know? Considering that Satan mobilized his demons to seize the body of Moses, that the body that had no natural diminishing, you can't say that enough, the eyes were not reduced and not affected at all. Moses' physical capabilities were intact. Something's very mysterious about this, isn't there? And Satan knows what it is. I think that's evidenced by Jude 9. Again, Deuteronomy 3.26 emphasizes the substitutional aspect of Moses' death. If you didn't get it when I first said it, I hope you got it now. <coughs> he was the reason Israel was able to go into the promised land. If he doesn't die, they don't get to go. Does that make sense? And that, of course, comports with Christ on the cross, doesn't it? In the place of Israel, the man of humility, the Numbers 12.3, he is, no, the man Moses was very humble more than all men who were on the face of the earth. So how many men is Moses more humble than? Everyone. That, who says that? God says that. Numbers 12.3, when you're considering what happened at Numbers 20, where he struck the rock twice, and you're looking at, uh, 326, where he says, God is angry at me on your account. And, and God says, because you did not believe me. What does he mean, God say to Moses, because you did not believe me? Believe what? Did he say that to Adam? Because Moses and Adam are going to be close. But Numbers 12:3, where Moses is the meek, very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. You've got to consider that when you're evaluating Moses, especially at Deuteronomy 3:26 and Numbers 20. Don't have an opinion on Numbers 20 and Deuteronomy 3:26 until you understand what Numbers 12:3 is saying about this man, Moses. The overwhelming consensus, though, among theological commentators is to rush to condemn Moses in Numbers 20. I think that's a terrible mistake. I think it takes out that Deuteronomy 18:15. They don't see the relationship between Israel entering the promise and Moses dying. They don't see it. Moses is, uh, and I would suggest uh, that they not go so fast in that condemnation. In light of Deuteronomy 34, 6, 34, 10, Numbers 12, 3. The humility of Moses. The honoring of Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 15. It is death. He's face to face with the Lord God himself. Last week I said this is, this is a tender moment. I believe it is incredibly tender. 
God, Moses knew God face to face. There's none like Moses, it says, that knew God face to face. Except one. There was another man that knew God face to face. Who also had the same kind of tenderness, I think, given to him. Those, uh, those face-to-face, nobody humbler, nobody like Moses. Those are extraordinary statements in Scripture. And when you compile them and you take into account all the totality here, Deuteronomy 3.26 becomes substitutionary. In other words, Moses sought to save Israel. Who is Israel to God? It's the wife of God at Numbers 20. So Moses sought to save the wife of God and take upon himself the consequences. Even though he wanted to see the promise. This, of course, would fit with who? Adam. Adam sought to save the wife given to him. Was Israel given to Moses? Absolutely. Was the woman given to Adam? And ultimately, this resolves at the highest possible level with the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, quickly. Beth Peor. I said that before and I wasn't so fast. Something about Beth Peor. I have this word opposite in there. Uh, Beth Peor. House of of the opening. Oh, I I need to read Numbers uh, 25 so you can get it. It really is important. Uh, Number 25. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove. And the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. Baal of Peor. So Moses is not going to be buried at Beth Peor. He's going to be buried opposite of Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So again, you see this death and substitution, right? It's a principle. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal at Peor. So Israel committed harlotry. Beth Peor is associated with Baal. Baal is who? That's right. Baal is Moloch. Leviticus 18.21. No one said that. But just in case you're on the internet, I'm going in a hurry now. Baal is Moloch. Moloch is child sacrifice. The great sacrifice at Numbers 25, 1 through 5 is the, is, I'm sorry, the sacrifice at Numbers 25, 1 through 5 is the great evil of burning children alive to Moloch. So let's go back here. And the, and the people ate. What's the question? What'd they eat? Who did they eat is the question. Eating of children. God hates the killing of innocents, Proverbs 6, 17. Those who kill innocents will hang in the sun before the Lord. Anyway, Moses is buried opposite in the valley and no one knows where. Do you suppose the man who knew God face to face would have asked him when and how he would die? And the other man, hey, Adam, who knew God face to face, would he ask? Surely he would ask. Don't call me Shirley. Do you suppose that he asked his creator, what's the meaning of Shirley? Shirley die. I think, again, I'm going to repeat it. The answer is obvious. The obvious answer is obvious. Mount Sinai, the name Sinai, is said to have the meaning of a ladder. Oh, no. Who's the ladder? 
just in case you think I don't think I don't tie all this together eventually. Sinai means ladder. That would so ladder would connect to Mount Sinai, and therefore to Jacob's vision, the ladder, the ladder that is Christ, on which the angels ascend and descend, the ladder which reaches from earth to heaven. Genesis 28:10 through 15 that connects the earth to heaven, if you wish to think of it that way, that mediates between earth and heaven. Recently, I made the case, as you know, the ladder, John 3, symbol of Christ, Proverbs 34. And I associated the ladder with a bronze serpent that Moses held up. Moses held up a bronze serpent that's associated with a ladder. Ladders associated with Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is Mount Horeb. And the ladder, Genesis 28:13. What did Christ say there at Genesis 28:13 about the ladder? Behold, the Lord, that's Jesus Christ, stood above the ladder. And what do you think he said? He said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And who does he say that to? He says that to Jacob. So I have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So back we go to Matthew 22, 29 through 33, John 11, 25. Resurrection. That's all about resurrection. So to recap, Moses lifts up the bronze serpent, which Christ connects to Jacob's ladder, John 3. Both are symbols of the one who is the resurrection and the life. Mount Sinai has within its name ladder. Moses, again, is attached. Mount Sinai is considered by the Jews as the meaning of Jacob's ladder. Mount Sinai is actually Mount Horeb. Angels are all over the ladder. The body of Moses is buried opposite of the place of great evil. Ladder is resurrection, and it couldn't be more obvious than that. And that's where we stop for today. See you later. Exit stage left. Right?